In the Gospel of John, we looked at the theme of belief so much. And so today we're going to look at the question of why don't people believe? Because for believers, this is probably one of the most extremely frustrating and dumbfounding things. When people are offered eternal life through Jesus Christ, and they say, nah, I'm good. Like, I believe that you believe that, but that's not for me. I'd rather believe in what makes me comfortable in a God of my own making. And I've had so many questions with you about people you love and people who you cry out to. And you say, look what Jesus has done in my life. Here's who Jesus is. Trust and believe in him. Without eyes to see and ears to hear, it just falls on dead faces. And so Jesus is going to look at, in our passage this morning, why don't people believe? And we should understand and be patient and realize but without eyes to see and without ears to hear, we would not have believed. And that's the prayer that we pray for those that we love. Lord, give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. Awake your spirit within them so that they can come to know you and trust in who you are. But there's still that frustrating notion of we, we gather up all of our strength and our courage to share a testimony with someone And they look at us like we're trying to explain astrophysics. But our testimony is still valuable. The word testimony, it describes a witness to events. It describes someone who is brought forth to testify of the truth. Whether someone responds to it or not, our call is to be a witness to the truth of what Christ has done in redemptive history and what he's done in us. And this is courtroom language to testify. And we say in in a courtroom, we would say that we bring forth these witnesses so that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is what happened. And that's why God has provided many witnesses, spiritual, physical. And we're going to look at some of those witnesses today who testifies to Christ. And as we read in our pre-service prayer in Luke 24, we are called to be those witnesses to this gospel that Jesus gave to the disciples, to Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is why the Christian testimony is so important. Because all of creation is witnessing to Christ. And we are called to be witnesses also. We're called to be witnesses so that people believe. And whether they believe or not, it's not up to us. It's up to the Lord and we can rest. That even when we can't see it, he is still working. He is still working in the hearts and minds of those we love. And it is all we can do to be witnesses. And in the ancient Near East, in this, this culture that, they, that Jesus was in, he was surrounded by Romans who would have been non-believers. But even among the Jews, even among his own people, who are supposed to be seeking God throughout the scriptures, there's still skepticism and there's still doubt. And this is why testimony is so important in that culture and in our culture. Because we have that in common with the Jewish culture is that we are a culture of skeptics. We don't believe. The Jews sought for signs. They said, give us more. Show me something amazing. And our culture does the same thing. But the Lord still has the same means to work in the hearts of those who are called according to his purpose. The witness of the gospel. And uh, I want to share something with you this morning. One of the ministries I talk about quite often is called One for Israel. It is Jews, Israel, spiritual Israel, 
who reach out to ethnic Israel and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and point them to who Christ is and how all of their scriptures, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament, the law, the the writings and the prophets all declare Christ. And this has been a big topic in our Roman study the last few weeks because we're looking at is true Israel, which is spiritual Israel versus ethnic Israel. We're only connected to Christ through their biology. And so this is an important distinction because um, when we look at who will respond to the proclamation of the gospel, it is spiritual Israel. But listen to some of the details. Because even down to the passage in, Jan- or in Daniel chapter 12 that we looked at last week, how ignorant she was of, of the scriptures and how much the scriptures were suppressed in her own household. I'm going to let her do my introduction for me. There were times that I'd be lying in my bed and wondering, where is God? Where am I going? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? And I feared that, and I feared what came afterwards. But in my home, it was more tradition. Somehow, it was always what the rabbi said was good, so everything was covered over. Jews didn't do too many bad things. Everything would be fine. We didn't hear scripture like Daniel chapter 12 that spoke about some going to everlasting life and some going to everlasting contempt. I learned that all Jews go to heaven. There's no such thing as hell. Hell is only a place, you know, you send somebody when you're mad at them. So this fear that I would have inside would always be answered by the traditional answers of the rabbis. I remember that night when I came to that university students hang out and I see two people sitting at a table and it's a friend I don't know him well but I know him from high school and he's sitting with Jack and I sat down and we started to speak and Jack was a real gentle guy and he was we were speaking about a lot of things about psychology about school about life in general and then he turned to me and he said very gently you know if you don't believe in Jesus Christ you're going to hell I go home and tell my mom, Mom, would you believe that I just met this guy, a Jewish guy, and he tells me that I have to believe in Jesus Christ, otherwise I'm going to hell. And she said, Sharon, he's a nut. Stay away. And within a year and a half, Jack and I were married. You know, every once in a while, Jack would tell me about Jesus and about Paul, and I would say to him, you can tell me anything you want about the Bible, but don't mention Jesus and don't mention Paul. I would go into my car as I went to work, and I would turn on the radio, and I would hear them speak about Jesus. It was quite amazing hearing these Gentile preachers, because, in, in fact, I would say, how is it that they know more about my God than I do? How is it that they could quote scripture and use scripture and speak about sin and righteousness and blood atonement? These are concepts that Jews should be speaking about. We have Passover, but we don't even speak about the blood atonement. How is it that they had more? And this is what attracted me to them. This is what drew me. There was a truth behind these words that I needed to know. One program I was listening to, Chuck Swindoll, and he was talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was talking about how there was this generational lying that went on. Abraham lied, Isaac lied, and Jacob lied. And yes, you know what? Jews are sinners just as much as Gentiles. So to hear this man speak about Jews and their need for a savior, their need for coverage for their sin was great because they said, wow, God is a just God. We have all sinned. We've all, we all need the savior. We all 
need that covering from God. I remember the tears were pouring down that day in my living room as I, as I realized that truth. I started to read the scriptures and I read through the Psalms and I heard David's cry in his heart and he said, Lord, I love you and I love your law. And I said to myself, how does a king of Israel love God like that and love his law? I want to love. Is it possible to love God outside of the rules and the regulations? I wanted to know him. As the weeks went on, the struggle just grew more and more because you wanted to be sure that Jesus really was the Messiah because you wanted to be honest with your God and you wanted to know, was, is he really God? Is he really the Messiah? I don't want to make a mistake because I want to honor God enough. One afternoon, I was driving home with my three kids in the car. I was so immersed in this difficulty in, 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 in coming to terms with Jesus as the Messiah. I came to my house. I went up to my bedroom. I closed the door. My bedroom was dim. I got on my knees and I prayed. I said, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, reveal yourself to me right now. I need a sign. There was a very dim light that rose from the bottom floor and up. And as that light rose, so did every burden off my shoulder rise with it. It was an amazing experience. From that point on, for six weeks, I was elated. I was joyful inside. I came outside and I saw the trees for the first time that there was truly a creator. Now I know with certainty where I am going. I know that he has a house prepared for me. And we know from scripture that love casts out all fears. And the love of Yeshua is so great that it casted out any fear. And I feel totally accepted, even in my inadequacies with the Lord, I feel totally accepted because of Yeshua's love and his forgiveness. And he teaches us what true forgiveness is. That's the end. One of the things that I encourage our Bible study with on Wednesday when we're looking at the fulfillment of Scripture and this remnant of Israel that will believe in the last days, the best thing we can do is to know our Old Testament and to know the Scriptures and to declare as she saw. When you read through the Psalms, it should point you to the Lord. It should point you to Christ. And I love that this guy, dating advice, single guys, he says, believe in Jesus or you're going to hell. Just take note. That's, it. that's how you get married. Sometimes. Sometimes if the Lord's working on their heart, absolutely. I love that. So let's open up to our passage uh, this morning in John chapter 5. And I hope you can see the importance of the, of the scriptures, the importance of knowing Christ and the emptiness of dead religion that you can't put your faith into. All right, John chapter 5, starting in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that that testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard. Excuse me, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your plan from all eternity was to send your son to redeem a wicked people. And his prayer for us was that we be one as you are one. That we be one with one another, united by the truth of the gospel, that we be united with you, drawn together by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would rejoice in the witnesses, that even the trees declare your majesty and your splendor. That we be rooted in your word and be people of the word. That your praises be ever on our lips. That our testimony would be one of redemption and restoration and forgiveness of sins to a holy and righteous God. Lord, I just pray this morning that your word would speak to us, that it would teach us, that it would guide us. You would speak to ears that can hear and eyes that can see and stir our affections that we love you in a way that makes the world jealous that they may come to you and be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this passage addresses uh, witnesses to Christ and the rejection of Christ. And this should cause the hearer to examine themselves. This is a passage of self-examination. This is one of the reasons why we say all the time, if someone's going to start reading in the Bible, you encourage them to read in the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John comes again and again. Do you believe? And why do you not believe? Because you cannot read the Gospel of John and, and not walk away with, with, with clear understandings of who Christ is. If you read the Gospel of John and do not see Jesus, you will never see Jesus. So this is why we're going through the Gospel of John, because we want to be people who are so rooted in the Gospel, so rooted in the Scriptures that testify of Christ, so rooted in the witnesses that God has sent for His Son. And so Jesus is doing two things this morning. We're going to look at two aspects of this passage. One, He's testifying about Himself and the witnesses of Himself. Those five witnesses mainly, the Father, John the Baptist, Christ's work Himself, and the Scriptures, and Moses. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to testify against the Jews, against those who had God's word. Now, if you're in any of our studies, what is the first thing we always do in the studies? We look for what? Repeated words. 
What is repeated more than anything in this passage? Anybody notice? You is used 28 times in this passage. And every time Jesus says you, it is in the plural, and it is speaking to the Jews gathered. It is speaking to anyone who is in the sound of his voice and who will ever hear his voice. The indictment is against you, plural, and we're going we're gonna to break that down a little bit. And that applies to all Jews and any non-believer. Because the witnesses are clear. And the fault is not of God, as we've seen in Romans. It's God is not to be indicted. It's the, the, the hardened hearts of those who reject the Lord. So let's jump right in. Verse 30. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This should point us back to last week when we talked about through Christ, we must abide in him. And he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So as Jesus does nothing apart from the Father, we can do nothing apart from Christ. And anything that we start according, excuse me, start apart from Christ will turn into nothing. We must be rooted in him. If Jesus can do nothing on on his own, neither can we. Jesus' witness is true, not because he seeks his will, but as a man, he he sought the will of God the Father. And so right off the bat, there's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. An important thought, that if Jesus' judgment can't be trusted if he seeks his own will, what does that say about our judgment? Can our judgment be trusted if we're seeking our own will? If Jesus can do nothing of himself, what what does that say about us? Because many people have asked me, this is part of being a pastor. I need to make a decision. How do I make this decision? Do I move here? Do I move there? Do I take this job? Do I go here? Do I go there? How do we know if we're making the right decision? Jesus tells us here. Why is Jesus' judgment just? Look at the word because. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. How do you make the right decision? You seek God's will in your decisions. Well, how do I do that? Someone asks me, where do I go? What do I do? Well, have you prayed about it? Have you sought the scriptures? Have you sought godly counsel? Have you sought the will of God? Because if you haven't, you're probably making a selfish decision. And so many of us approach our decisions with Jesus and prayer as an afterthought. Instead of coming before him first, everything Jesus did was basked in prayer. Fully God, but yet he did nothing apart from the Father. What an important reminder to the believer of how dependent we should be on him. Prayer is powerful. God's word is full of richness and wisdom and truth. And the spirit of God rests within our brothers and sisters in Christ. How could we not seek God's will in what God has given us? The same way Jesus did. 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. This might be confusing at first. Jesus is not saying that my, you should not believe my words unless you hear them from someone else. But Jesus knows their heart. Essentially, he's saying, I know you don't believe just my words, but I'm going to give you some more reasons to believe. He was also looking at Numbers 35-30, where the, the, the Hebrew law said you should not condemn someone based on only one witness. You know that it is true if there's at least two witnesses. So our justice system actually gets that from Old Testament law. 
So Jesus says, I know you don't believe me. I know you hate me because we just saw that they sought to kill him. He's a couple verses ago. He's speaking to the same crowd. If you don't believe me, there's another. Who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. There's a parallel passage in John chapter 8. And I'm going to look at it real quick. I won't spend too much time on it because we're going to be there. But at the very end, he's, he's talking to them the same kind of scenario that he's judging along with the Father. It, this is John chapter 8, verse 17. Jesus is quoting numbers here. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know the, my Father also. So this connection, this other witness is always pointing to the Father. But... Jesus knows the heart of those he's speaking to. He knows that they can only think temporally. They can only think about another human witness. So their mind's going to go to John the Baptist. And so Jesus, it seems like he's jumping around here, but he's he's heading them off. He goes right into, um, you sent to John. So you got to remember what happened in chapter 1. They asked John. They heard John preaching there, and they asked him, are you the Christ? John clearly said, I am not. There's one who comes after me. John came to point to Christ. And so Jesus is saying, don't look at, don't look at John the Baptist as, as my confirmation. You called him. You asked him. He gave you the truth. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet you did not listen to him. Verse 34, he knows the heart of man. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, But I say these things so that you might be saved. They would have appealed to John. Jesus appealed to the Father. Jesus appealed to the highest witness possible. Jesus' witness did not come from man, but John was a faithful witness. Jesus loved John and his witness was, was true. But the point was not to believe because a man said it, but believe because John was sent from God. Just like Jesus was sent from the Father. And the whole purpose, I say these things so that you may be saved. John's whole message, repent and be saved, repent and believe. Jesus' whole message, you, I say these things so that you may be saved. John is the evangelist. He's concerned with people being saved. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. He's concerned with people being saved. What should we be concerned with? It's so easy to get caught up in all these peripheral things, these things that can distract and take us away from the Lord. But what it comes down to is, do you know Christ? Do you see these witnesses? Do you hear them? Jesus describes that witness. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. A lamp is not the source of the light, but the lamp carries the light. John was this lamp who took the light with him wherever he went. That should be a picture of us as believers. Lamps in the midst of darkness that we carry this light wherever we go. And like those in the parable of the sower who come up in the rocky ground and they sprout up. They rejoiced a little while. They got the Jesus warm and fuzzies and they were so excited for a moment. But it didn't last. The Jesus butterflies wore off. Because John asked too much of them. John asked them to repent. 
to admit their sins and to turn to Christ. That's where most people draw the line. I like this restoration stuff, but not dying to myself and not leaving the other things that I'm worshiping other than the Lord God. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So first, we see the witness of John the Baptist. Now we see the witness of Christ's works himself. We've looked at this the past few weeks, and we'll see this going forward. Next week, he's going he's gonna to multiply the, the loaves and the fishes, and he's going to feed 5,000. Most people get caught up in the works of Christ. The works of Christ are not the end in themselves. You need to hear that. No, we don't look to Jesus' miracles for the sake of the miracles. Everything he did was to confirm why he was sent. Everything he did was to point people to the Father, that they believe in him, that they believe in the Father. So Jesus' signs, the healings, the teachings, they were a witness to his divinity and his mission. And everything that the Father sent him to do, he will accomplish. And he did accomplish on the cross. And the greatest witness of all, the one that would be fulfilled, is when he rose again from the dead. And he confirmed that even death could not hold him. He kept the law. He proclaimed the good news. He fulfilled everything that was proclaimed about him in the law, the writings, and the prophets. He did them perfectly. And he died for sins. The blood atonement that she was speaking about earlier, that the Jews should have looked to, to recognize that I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And the only way that you can be saved is to believe that it is in Jesus that that is possible and that the man who rose from the grave can raise me from my dead in my sins. That is what the Father sent him to accomplish. Those are the works that testify of him, the greatest of them being the resurrection from the dead. That is the gospel that we proclaim. That is the work that testifies to Christ. That is the work that is undeniable. For he is perfect and he walked every moment on this earth as a man. He was tempted in every way as a man, yet did not sin. And died so that we could have life, and rose again so that we could rise to life. In him, there is no greater news in the world. There is no greater witness that we can proclaim. And it's sad that many people read the Gospels on a surface level. Many churches teach the Gospels on a surface level. They want to see Jesus only as a good teacher and as a miracle worker. That's like saying the Grand Canyon is a little hole. How short we sell Christ if he's just a teacher, if he's just a miracle worker, if he's just another in the line of Gandhi and everybody else who does good things. It's all to go home and pack it up. You can't miss that these works are a witness to who he is and that he requires us to believe in him. So let's not minimize Christ. Let's not fall in line with a shallow gospel that is just about moral change and good deeds. Those things are great, but they come out of belief. I think it's important to hear as an encouragement. I know many of you get frustrated because you share the gospel with people. You pour out your heart to people. You pray for people, and they don't listen to your witness. They had Jesus standing in front of them. Jesus spoke to them, looked them in the eye. They heard his voice. They saw the miracles. They saw the dead rise. They saw the blind see. They saw him turn bread, crumbs of bread into baskets full. 
And they sent him to the cross and they killed him. Yet we forget that even our testimony is not as great as Christ. And we can just be encouraged that as the world hated him, they will hate us for proclaiming that. But that's not our goal. Goal is not to be successful, but to be faithful and trust that God will be faithful in our works. If they didn't believe Jesus, they're not going to believe us. And they're not going to believe us unless they hear Jesus' voice, as we saw last week. Because he came to accomplish the works that the Father sent him to do. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. This is the greatest of all witnesses, that the Father himself, the God of the universe. All the rest of these are dependent on the witness of the Father. This is the greatest witness for Christ and against them. It is both a witness of Christ uh, from the Father and it's an indictment against the Jews. Because Jesus was so closely connected to the Father, we saw that last week, he can't be but God. So if they reject him, they're rejecting the Father also. Now here's where it starts to turn. So Jesus is giving them information up until this point. Now is where the indictment comes. Look at the second half of verse 37. From this point on, Of those 28 uses of you, 24 of them come after this. I just imagine Jesus with his finger out and his arm outstretched. You, you, you. Listen to the second half of verse 34. Talking about the Father now. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. This is strong language. Imagine this. Never heard, never seen. You being a Jew your entire life, your entire identity is wrapped up in being ethnic Israel. I am a son of David. I am a son of Abraham. I am from the tribe of Benjamin, Judah. Go down the list. Jesus said, you never knew father. You've never seen him. You've never heard him. What an indictment. Everything you thought was a lie because you don't know God. Because you can't see me. This challenges a lot of people's perception of who Jesus is. Because this is strong language. There is no middle ground with Christ. Either you love me or you reject me and hate me. And this sets up Moses really well. Because Moses, they were looking to Moses as their hope. This is the preview of what's coming. Moses saw God and heard God. Even if he just saw him passing so much so, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 3 at the end of this. But so much so that when he came into the contact of God's very presence, he glowed. You look to Moses, Moses saw God, and he will testify of me. We'll see that in just a moment. And just reading this reminds me of so many people who consider themselves Christians, who talk like they are Christians. But you can tell, it is very evident, that there is no fruit in their lives and there is no real knowledge of Christ. You cannot know know God and not be changed. You, you, you cannot hear God's voice. You cannot see him work for real and not be changed. So, so many people, that's what the word hypocrite means. So many people are walking around with a mask, playing the role of Christians. And when you get down to it, they are miserable. There is no joy within them. They do not know the Lord. But it sounds good to say I'm a Christian and I'm a part of this church. And I've been going through these motions for decades. And you do not have his word abiding in you. 
for you do not believe the one whom he sent. Right away, the Father's word, the Father and the word are are, um, inseparable. Just like we saw last week, you can't believe unless you have eternal life within you. You, Also here, you can't believe unless God's word is within you. This is new covenant language. I will take my law and I will write it on your heart. This is a mark of those who will believe is they have God's word rooted within them. They are like people who've been living in a strange land their entire life. And all of a sudden someone starts speaking their language and wait, this was written to me. I know this. My eyes are open. My heart is is turned. Someone's speaking to me. That is the mark of someone who will believe as they hear God's word and they receive it with joy. They're not like the ones in the rocky soil thrown on the pavement or the ones who get beaten up by the things of this world, but they receive it and they grow and they flourish because God's word is within them. Because if you had God's word in you, it would change you from the inside out. The whole point of reading scriptures, the Tanakh to the Jews, was to point to the Messiah. So that there would be evidence of God's work within you. It connects the Father's voice to scripture in the same breath. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that, and it is they that bear witness about me. Searching the scriptures is a, is a good thing. I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to encourage others to do that. But scripture is the great litmus test. Like we just said, if you read John and you can't see Christ in it, you can't see him for who he is, you're never going to see. Search the scriptures. But Jesus is talking to people who search the scriptures and thought that they had eternal life in them. I want to clarify with this. There is eternal life within them. But it's not the pages. It's not the words. It's not the mere act of looking at a Bible that has eternal life in it. The real life in Scripture is who they bear witness to. That is the eternal life. Who the Scriptures point to. Otherwise, it's just pen and ink. Reading Scriptures and not seeing Jesus is like reading a box of macaroni and cheese and saying these are great directions and setting it to the side. It's pointless. What good is it if you're going to read and not do what it says or, or, or not partake of what is written within it? And that's a real question for us. Because for many people, reading Bible, is, it's just an empty act. I'm doing it because I, I get my little daily verse updates and it makes me feel better about myself and I can pack myself on the back because I did a nice religious thing today. Are you reading the Bible because you think that by that good work you will have life? Or are you reading the Bible because in every page it testifies to Christ and it speaks to your soul? It is like sweet honey, as we read earlier in Psalm 19. That It is good and it is perfect and it is just. And like David, we love the law. We love God's word because it feeds us. Jesus said that man will not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do we get fed from God's word? Do we search the scriptures and see Jesus? On every page. And it pleads to people. Believe in me. Turn from your sins and have eternal life. That's why we'll be people who are rooted in scripture. We'll always be rooted in scripture in everything we do. And when we're walking alongside people who don't know the Lord. We will point them to scripture. We don't have to convince them. 
Because God's word is living and active. It will pierce joint and marrow. It will pierce soul and spirit. It will cut to the heart. If God's law is written on someone's heart, he will awaken it in them as soon as they hear it. Jesus is speaking to people who search the scriptures and do not find him. They search the scriptures, yet you refuse to come to me that you may live. God's word offers eternal life, the food and water that will satisfy forever. But people are content with reading the box and looking for food elsewhere. This is what Jesus is speaking to. And it seems crazy to us that eternal life is offered and people refuse it. But it happens every day. It's the nature of the wide way. It's the easier way. It's the easier way to just think some good thoughts, hope you have enough fairy dust to fly on your own, because the real gospel requires too much. It requires me to stop worshiping what I'm worshiping. It requires, me for, it requires for me to forsake my idols and worship the God who made me and calls me to die to myself. It's too much. This is too much a gospel. Unless it points to a God whose yoke is easy and burden is light. Unless it points to a God who we can put all of our sorrows and our pain on him. This is why in our guys' study, we're going through a series on idols. We've looked at such nice, light topics as comfort, control, and lust. Stuff that no guy struggles with. Because we have to examine within our own hearts our desire for things other than God. This narrow way calls us to forsake everything for the sake of him. And not to be like the people who refuse to come to him and have life. And he goes on, verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. Jesus neither got his witness nor his glory, or when he says this worth or, or, or praise or value comes from people. He's not doing things for the sake of, of, of man. I think it's important here that if you read this, if you continue reading in chapter 5, they had just accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. We're still in that conversation. So Jesus is also telling them, I'm not saying this so you'll be pleased with me. I'm not saying this because you just criticize, with, you just criticize me. I'm not responding to that. I don't care what you think. Because my praise, my glory does not come from God. Or excuse me, not come from people. It does come from God. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. If there is no word within you, there is no love within you. God's word and God's love are one and the same. You can't have the love of God without having God's word. So when people say, I just want a God of love. I don't want theology. I don't want to have to open the Bible. You can't. You can't know God's love without knowing his word. And Jesus equated them as equal. All the scriptures point to him. You can't understand God's love unless you understand man's sin. You can't understand God's love unless you understand your need for his love. And so let us speak to that lie in our culture that we can just have a God of love and a God of my own making. Because without the scriptures to tell us that we are broken and we deserve death, and there is everlasting contempt and judgment for those who, who reject him. God's love means nothing. Jesus knew that they didn't have his love in him because they didn't hear the word of God. 
Jesus equated those two. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Those who love God will love the things of God. Amen? Those who love God will love the things of God, and they will love the one that God sent. It's inescapable. But Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. This is exactly what happens. Jesus bears witness along with the Father and John the Baptist and Scripture and all of creation, and people deny him, yet they love gurus. They love people who tell them how great they are and follow my system, and I will make you a better person, ways to your better life now, rather than what Christ says is a better life. And this this happened after Jesus, and still to this day, people come and say, I'm the Messiah, follow me, and many will. But Jesus' witness was that of one with the Father. But to the people who are so consumed with what man is doing, look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that only comes from God? You can't serve two masters. If you're looking to please men, if you're looking for a gospel made by men, then you can't know the gospel of God. You can't. This is so key because most people care more about what people think and receiving validation from men and women, honor and credit from them instead of seeking the glory of God. It's one thing to say, I seek the glory of God. It's another thing to say, I only seek the glory of God. I don't seek glory anywhere else. None of us can say that. That is an indictment on our desire to be validated by everyone around us. And this is the truth of the gospel, that the only glory that matters comes from God. I want to look at a couple quick verses. Uh, Romans chapter 2, we looked at this. I'm going to flip through these quickly, so um, it's going to be a couple of verses. If you can get there, come with me. But Romans chapter 2, we, we looked at this. And um, Romans chapter 2 ties together what true Israel is. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but of God. That is a mark of true Israel. And Paul goes on, you look at Galatians chapter 1, Galatians 1.10, one of my favorite verses. A verse I have to remind myself all the time, every time I am tempted to look to man for validation, to please people, to do things for the sake of what others might think about me. Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I or I am trying to please man, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't please man and be a servant of Christ. You can't desire that they're incompatible with one another. This goes back to verse 41, where Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to be obedient to my father. And that is what we are called to do. Then he takes it a step further. Because he's been pointing the finger at them quite a bit. You, 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 you. And he contrasts it with in me there is life, in me there is witness to me, and in you there is denial and rejection. And he could say, I'm going to stand before you and judge you. But he doesn't. He takes what is most close to them, what they love so much, what Bubba loves So much. For you, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses you. Moses, 
on whom you have set your hope accuses you. Can you imagine that? Your whole life you see Moses as the lawgiver. And it's interesting that this is in the present tense. It didn't say Moses accused you. Moses is accusing you. Right now, Moses, the lawgiver himself, God gave the law to Moses, and he's standing accusing them. I spoke of Christ. I pointed to Christ, and you denied me. They put their hope in him as a lawgiver. They put their hope in him as a scripture writer, instead of looking to the God who gave him the law, looking to the God who put his spirit within him to write scripture. And the Jews put their hope in the law, but that very law condemns them. And that's the nature of the law. It is condemning. It is impossible to keep. No one can keep the law on their own. And Jesus told us that it is the, the, the spirit of the law. At the very core, our hearts deceive us. Our hearts break the law. And anything committed in the heart will be held against you. I think that this is a real question because most people we talk to They're determining their goodness by their own moral standard, mostly of their own making. This is my idea of what's right and wrong. And Francis Schaeffer had this great thing. Years before the the, the GoPro, he had this idea. And so Francis Schaeffer would often ask people about how good they were. And he said, okay, I've got a question for you. By your own standard, if you wore a camera around your, your, your chest and your camera, and that camera recorded every piece of advice you had ever given everyone, How do you hold up to your own standard? Have you kept your own advice? Francis Schaeffer talked to hundreds of people, if not thousands. And the response every time was, I haven't even lived up to my own standards. I haven't even lived up to the advice that I've given other people. I haven't even lived up up to my own moral law, let alone the law of God given to Moses. Reading through God's law one time, should convict us and remind us. This is a great tool of many street evangelists is point people to the God, point people to the law. Have you lusted? Have you cheated? Have you lied? You have sinned, and according to James, you broke one, you've broken them all. And so people who are appealing to Moses, putting their hope in the teaching that Moses gave them, Moses gave them an unreachable standard. Paul calls the Mosaic law a ministry of death, and we're going to get there in just a second. So one of these examples, I had a neighbor when we lived in Orlando, elderly woman, lived by herself, um, got to talking to her a little bit, you know, tried to invite her to church. Oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I said, OK, tell me about that. She said, well, and she was very righteous in herself. She stood up straight and she said, well, I live by the Ten Commandments. Said, really? That was the mark of her being a Christian. And she proceeded to tell me all the gossip of everyone in the neighborhood, hated everybody. No one liked her because she was she was cranky. But this, this woman was assuming that she was a Christian because she lived by the Ten Commandments. In one conversation, she condemned herself. How many times do we speak to people who are lifting themselves up by a moral standard that they can't even keep in that conversation? This reminds me how many of those conversations I've had, how many people are trying to save themselves through this own moral standard. But Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Believe Moses. He pointed to me. Deuteronomy 18 talks about a prophet who will come. Believe in the words of this prophet. I will put my words within him. And if you don't believe him, it will be held against you. 
Moses was proclaiming, looking for the prophet of prophets that would come. Jesus said, if you believe Moses' word, if you've read Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, I encourage you to, you would have heard me. Then there's another great indictment. The rich man and Lazarus, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 16. The rich man and and Lazarus, uh, there's a story of a man who had nothing in his own life. He's sitting outside this rich man's door and they have feasts every day. He just wants crumbs. The rich man dies and he goes and he goes to hell. And there's this chasm between him and Abraham. And he's appealing to Abraham. Abraham, save me. Abraham, give, give me just a drop of, of water to put on my tongue to put out this, this, this burning. Look at Luke 16, verse 18. But Abraham said. So the, his, his question is, can you send someone to my family to tell them the good news? Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Your family already has the good news. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is how strong the rebellion of a hardened heart is. That even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. Because the scriptures testify of it. If they don't believe the scriptures, they won't believe the witness of someone rise from the dead. And so now here we have our last verse. But if you did not believe his writings, how you believe my words right away. This connects Old Testament and New Testament. They are synonymous. The writings of Moses and the words of Jesus are one cohesive message. It's God's word spoken throughout time. If they didn't believe Moses, how would they believe me? I want to look at one last passage and then we're going to close. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter three. Second Corinthians chapter three is such a great summary of everything we've just looked at. We're going to do this quickly. And the whole passage is a parallel. If you want some homework, I think I'm going to start giving you guys homework every week. But just read through 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at how Paul speaks about this. And notice all the parallel themes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting, we'll start in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. John 5.30, do nothing apart from the Father. We must say the same thing, our sufficiency comes from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? We're those witnesses, new covenant language again. Not the letter, not the law given by Moses, but the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved into letters of stone... The word of God is a good thing. The law is a good thing. But Paul calls it a ministry of death. Because in the law, there is no life. The law is supposed to tell us, we saw this in the three uses of the law. It's a mirror. It's supposed to show us our sin. Show us that we are dead in our sin. It's a ministry of death carved on stone. But if that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of it, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The ministry of the Spirit through the Word, through faith in Jesus Christ, has more glory than these tablets of stone that the Jews were looking for for life. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
The glory of Christ, the glory of the word made flesh, surpasses the glory of the law. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much, will, much more will what is permanent have glory. The law was never meant to be permanent. Putting your hope in Moses was never meant to be permanent. Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. Christ fulfilled all the scriptures and he is permanent. He will reign forever. The work of the spirit is permanent. This is the boldness of a believer. Look at this. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The Jews put their hope in Moses. We put our hope in Christ and we can be bold. Because not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to see that the the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what had been brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Think about that for a moment. Paul is just re-summarizing what we just looked at. They're reading the old covenant. They're seeing the law and a law and a veil is there. But in Christ is lifted. All is made aware to us. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. It's not just their eyes, it's their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Do we ever think about that? That when you read Scripture with renewed eyes, you are reading glory. You are in glory, being transformed into glory, and this is a beautiful encouragement to the believer. So here's what I want to close. Every time you bear witness to Christ, the Father, John the Baptist, Jesus' very works, the scriptures, and Moses bear witness with you. And as we will see, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said, it's greater that I send him, he will confirm everything. So we have all those witnesses with us. Don't be afraid of what the world says. Don't be afraid of how people respond to you. Don't rest in anything else but what we know to be true, confirmed by all these witnesses. If they reject you, they're not rejecting you, but rejecting Christ. So be faithful in and out of season. And our God will restore and confirm and strengthen you in his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that the veil has dropped. Lord, for those who have eyes to see, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice at what you have done. Let us rejoice that you wrote your law on our hearts. Let us rejoice that we can understand and respond. Let us rejoice at the work that you've done in our lives. Lord, let us pray for the opening of eyes, the softening of, of hearts. Let us pray that people will hear your voice. Lord, continue to draw lost sheep to yourself. Continue to use us as ministers of this gospel. Continue to use us as witnesses to what you have done throughout all of eternity. Thank you for this message of redemption and reconciliation and life everlasting through Christ Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.